Hi, it's Matt. Just before we start the show, I want to tell you about a great live event I've got coming up on the 27th of March. To celebrate 600 episodes of Recruiting Future, I'm going to be hosting a live Ask Me Anything webinar. This is your chance to pick my brain on anything you like, including market trends and predictions, the impact of AI on recruiting, skills-based hiring, the changing role of recruiters, podcasting tips, or even my favourite Scottish tourist destinations and whiskies. Literally, ask me anything. I'll also be joined by some surprise special guests who'll be adding their perspectives to the conversation. You can sign up now by going to mattalder.me slash AMA. That's mattalder.me slash AMA. And I really look forward to seeing you there. That web address one last time. mattalder.me slash AMA. Support for this podcast comes from E6. For 25 years, E6 has been the preeminent peer networking and independent information source for corporate executive recruiting leaders worldwide. Featuring members from around 100 of the leading employers in the world, it is the one-stop shop for trusted networking with peers, for benchmarking and for team development. Find out more about membership at www.e6.org. That's www.e6.org and E6 is spelled E-S-I-X or buy their book, Leadership Recruiting, on Amazon. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi everyone, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 364 of the Recruiting Future podcast. One of the topics I get asked to cover frequently is the growth of the corporate executive recruiting function. So with that in mind, I've partnered with E6, the Executive Search Information Exchange, to bring you a series of three interviews exploring the key trends and issues in corporate executive recruiting. In episode 363, we spoke about the evolution of corporate executive recruiting. In this episode, I want to explore diversity at the executive level and how employers can be doing better. My guest is Elizabeth Wallace, Head of Portfolio Talent at HG, and she has some very valuable insights and advice to share. Hi, Elizabeth, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Could you just introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. Uh, So my name is Elizabeth Wallace. I am the head of portfolio talent for a company called HG. We're a private equity firm. Um, we are mainly investing in software companies, so that's really the backbone of everything that we do. We've got a, a small number of uh, tech services companies within our portfolio. Um, we've got about 40 portfolio companies across Europe and the US, 
EV of, of circa $70 billion, uh, 50,000 employees across them. Uh, but HG itself is about 230 employees, about funds under management of about $30 billion. I was hired uh, just over two years ago, um, actually, to build out a new function for HG, which is the portfolio talent function. Um, and essentially, myself and my team uh, are responsible for all of the C-level. So that's kind of any direct reports into the CEO, the CEO and board. And we're responsible for all of that um, talent acquisition. We do it directly, mainly, uh, as well as any of the kind of talent management uh, and development pieces that need to happen, plus assessment. Uh, so that's broadly uh, a very quick snapshot of me and what I do. Fantastic stuff. And I, I want to sort of dig into some of that later, because I think there's some really fascinating things there. Before we do, though, let's just talk a little bit more generally about exec recruitment and really the the, the effect that the pandemic's had on it over the last 18 months. What have you been seeing? What has it been like? You know, it's, it's a bit of a tale of uh, two cities, really. Um, and I think it really depends who you ask. Um you know, what I have seen, I've been in recruitment uh, or talent space for you know, almost 20 years. Um, so when I graduated, I, I really haven't done anything since I fell into it. And, and, you know, I haven't really had the skills to do anything else, but I love it. I absolutely love this space. And it has really developed and changed in that time. And what COVID really brought, I think, was a couple of different things. Um, so some of the really good stuff around flexibility, you know, we all know that um, working from home, it, it, it has worked because it had to work. You know, technology, you know, being a technology investing company, um, technology really was at the heart of that, right? It facilitated it. But, you know, to be honest, this has been going back many years, uh, the flexible working piece. You know, the banks have been, um, they've allowed flexible working for many different reasons, um, not least to to reduce the the real estate expense in, in very expensive cities. Um, so, so working from home has always kind of been there. But now candidates are saying to us, I'm not really too interested in taking on a position where I'm five days a week in an office for a variety of reasons. So that's one thing. But what that really means is the candidate pools are opening up. You know, the the idea of working from home isn't as taboo as it was before, if I'm going to be frank, um, because everybody knows it works because they've had to work from home. Um, and I think what that means is, you know, lower cost locations for candidates, um, you know, candidates completely working from home or being more flexible or those that haven't, you know, they're returning to work, Um you know, that's opened all of that up. And what that then opens up is the diversity piece, uh, which for us is really important. You know, that that diverse candidate pool, and I mean diversity across all of the different pools um, and, and strands of diversity, that's really opened um, up, at least opened up the opportunity and the conversation, um, you know, from where it was kind of a year, year and a half ago. I think also, you know, people's minds have changed around, you know, the, the ability to be able to talk about mental health, um, you know, what that really means, what it means to people. And again, for some people, that was quite taboo to talk about. But, you know, for a lot of people during COVID, you know, we really got to see the insides of their homes. We got to get to know them better and more. Um, and so that conversation, again, has opened back up. So the world of work and talent, which is, you know, at the top of that, um, that has changed. And boy, it's for the better. But it's it's been a rocky road of getting there. And I don't think it's perfect yet. I think we're just at the start 
of a change in the way that we're working, the talent we're bringing in uh, and how we work. <clears throat> These kind of big collaboration spaces that um, organizations have put together uh, rather than you sit at your desk all day. Is that let's collaborate, let's brainstorm, let's share ideas. Let's be in the office for a reason and make it productive. So I think that's what COVID has probably bought, brought us. Um, and then I think things are different across different geographics, right? If you look at the States, you know, look, it, it's a similar situation in, in many ways, but then, you know, you had a, a huge outpouring with, you know, BLM, you know, and all of what, what that's brought. Now, has it hit here in Europe? You know, it, we tend to lag behind the US in, in a lot of the trends around people um, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the really great stuff that's happening around um, diversity there. So, you know, that is, that's coming here more and more. And that's what I'm really seeing as, and I don't think it's even a trend. I think it's a change and a much needed one. So COVID, while it's been terrible for many people um, and it's affected lots of people's lives, if I think about talent in the world of work, I think it's opened the conversation. I think it's changed the dialogue. Um, and I think the, the flexibility piece in lots of different ways is a great thing. And I don't think we'll be going back from there. Absolutely. And I think you're totally right in terms of we're really at the kind of the beginning of this of this journey to the to the next stage of, of work and whatever that is going to look like. Just to dig a little bit deeper into the diversity strategy you have, tell, tell us a little bit more about what you do to make sure you have a diverse pool of candidates at the, at the level that you recruit at. So diversity um, is a really interesting one. So we have to ask, what do we mean by diversity? Um, and what's important to our organizations and, and why are we doing this? So there's a whole bunch of questions that we ask ourselves beforehand. Um, I will talk about the industry in general. Private equity um, is, is still somewhat nascent in this area. And again, very different in the States versus Europe. I think diversity means different things in different geographics, right? So you think about Asia, again, it'll be slightly different there versus here. So with all of that backdrop, just in general, if we talk about um, private equity as an industry and private equity-backed companies, it's a tough gig because I think it hasn't been top of the agenda, for long. Um, private equity isn't a particularly old industry. Um, it's a few decades old, essentially, um, and essentially born out of, of, of um, investment banking. If I look at my old industry where I used to work, I worked in asset management. That's hundreds of years old, right? So a long time to really think about what makes a good organization, um, you know, what, what's the, what the power of diversity brings in investing, why would you not do it? and make, you know, lots of really big mistakes in getting to the right answer. And then I came into private equity and it was a bit of a shock, but I understood that, you know, there's a, a real desire in private equity um, and especially driven by investors, if I'm going to be frank, and that's generally where these things come from. Um, investors sit, saying to us and saying to many of our private equity peers, you know, if your organizations don't reflect our communities, we're not going to invest in you. You know, your boards need to reflect our communities. But this is this is taking a while. This is going to take a little while. Um, this is not a quick fix, silver bullet situation. Um, so the awareness and the education around it comes first. Um, and and I would say in terms of diversity, what what I really feel strongly about is it can't just be talking about I need to hire more women. Uh, you know, right? Look, that's a start. But you've got to have an equitable workplace. 
where there's equity, equality and diversity together. There's no longer we're talking about IND or DNI um, as we were many years ago. This is all about is this an equal workplace where people have their voices heard? It doesn't matter where you come from, you know, what your ethnicity is, you know, what you identify as sexually. It doesn't matter if you're a Martian, a female, a male, non-binary, you know, it doesn't matter. You have an equal platform, equal opportunities within that organization. And, you know, and then you can start to bring the diversity in because nothing worse than an organization where it's, you know, uh, dominated by the, the in-group and then you bring in some folks from the out-group, whatever that might look like, and land them into an organization where it's not, it hasn't gone through that equality journey. So we, we talk about equality first, you know, is this an inclusive environment? Are there equal opportunities here for folks? Are people educated in terms of what this means? Are they educated and are they aware of what's happening in the world around them in different geographics? What can they learn from that? And why are we bringing these folks in? This isn't a HR driven exercise. This is, this makes good business sense. It is the right thing to do. Um, and the world has changed. And then this is the future. This is the world of work as we stand right now. And if we don't get on that page, we're going to be sorely behind in many different ways. But the right thing to do is, is really the crux of all of this. And so when we think about hiring at the C-level, so the CEO and his or her direct reports and the board, we always find the best candidate, right? We always do, but we have a super strong lens on uh, if it's in the States, we look at um, all forms of diversity, but really we have to start somewhere. So we start with what we can measure there, which is, you know, gender diversity and ethnicity. Um, and in Europe, you know, depending on which region it is, um, we'll focus on uh, gender diversity, but actually still have our lens on other forms of diversity uh, where people have, but they have to self-disclose, right? So, you know, us being able to measure that is a bit of a tricky one, but, you know, our lens is always on that. But really, we also think about how different, what is it we need to get to in the end? What's the end goal here? And who's going to get us there? And what's the makeup of the team? Not just the individual, but what are we lacking in that team? Are we lacking a diverse background? Are we lacking somebody who, um, you know, has a specific skill set? And then how do we find that within the candidate pool out there? Um, we also want to be very clear. I think a narrative around, you know, this um, this line that, that, that is out there that I think is really unfair, this male pale stale um, narrative, I think that's really wrong. Um, I think there are, I think everybody should be included, right? An inclusive environment includes everybody, um, no matter what, what you identify as. Um, and, you know, we have in tech, right, it's tech and it's private equity. There are a lot of males in our organizations. Um, and I don't like that narrative. It makes people feel like then they're shoved into an outgroup. And that's really wrong. What we say is who are the best candidates? We map it all out. Who are the best from that list? And, and really, if we feel in that team, they're really missing diversity in whatever strand. We really, really focus on that. But we still always make sure we're the best candidate. And then our view is we've got to bring those folks in and set them up for success because you're really only looking at half the journey when you say hire. You've then got onboarding, which is generally done really poorly in organizations. So you've got to have a, a differentiated onboarding process. And then you've got to have a buddy process, a mentor process around that as well. 
for folks who might come from a different background, you know, might be coming into a an outgroup dominated environment. They, um, sorry, an in group uh, dominated environment. So they might be part of an outgroup. You know, how is that going to land in there? How are folks educated around how to onboard that person properly, set them up for success, promote those folks, make sure they're retained, paid fairly, etc. So hiring is just the part and the start of the journey, really. I think. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I was going to ask you a, a little bit about assessment because you you, you obviously mentioned that's a, that's a key part of your role. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Matt, that is a really big one. Um, it is is something very close to my heart in many ways um, because I think, as I mentioned before, I came from an industry, I came from asset management, which is just that bit more developed. It's an older industry. It's a bit more developed than than this particular industry. Um, and, and much you wouldn't do in this industry from that one, but much you, you, you'd learn from what we did over there to not do here and then some stuff to do here. Um, an assessment was really interesting to me. So when I joined, um, assessment was used for selection. So when I came on board, we'd interview people and there was no sense of, using an assessment tool, clue in the title, as a tool, it was a sense of that, if that tool says yes, then great. If that tool says no, then no, we're not hiring. I said, right, you've gone through all of this. Why are we using this tool in particular? It's full of holes. There's no science behind it. That makes any sense. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's not a great tool to use. And that's, that should be part of your decision making if you want to use it for selection. But there was just this sense of the whole industry does it, so we've got to do it. Um, and I found that really fascinating. I think these tools can be helpful to build the picture of the person you're hiring. Um, but the, the science has moved away from that individual piece, moved away from the selection piece, and it's moved on to teams. You know, what is the team that you have here? What's the makeup of that team? What are the collective strengths and the collective developmental areas for these individuals within the team? And so we started using a tool that's based, it's, it's for teams and it's new. It came from Estonia, um, you know, by a bunch of really smart guys over there. And we don't, we use it in the selection process in the sense of using it as a tool to say, here's some additional information, you know, Private equity is a data-rich, hungry environment uh, and industry. And the more data you can give, the bigger and better the picture becomes. And so we said, we we're going to use it for that, but we are absolutely not using it for selection to say yes or no. That just does not work for us. There's no basis for it. Just because it's always been done that way doesn't make sense. And a lot of tools create social inequalities. Um, and interesting enough, I'm doing a master's in, in organizational psychology and my thesis is on this because I feel so strongly about it. I've looked into hundreds of these tools. I've taken hundreds of them myself. I've looked at the results. I've looked at the science behind them. I've spoken to 30 of my peers in, in private equity and said, why do you use that tool? Why are you all using the same thing? It's this big business piece. So there's, there's a bit of a push against these tools at the moment and a shift to say, why are we using them? Why does this make sense? And actually, why isn't it just used for development? So for us, we use it a little in selection, but not, it's just literally as a tool. But as we come along to the developmental stage, we say everybody has a developmental area or two or three. And we should be using these in conjunction with the individual to say, does this reflect you? 
And how can we help you more? How can we work together on this? How can we all work as a team on our collective areas of development, but use our strengths to mitigate those and to help each other understand our derailers under stress, right? We get under stress. These are high growth organizations. You know, there's going to be a lot of stress. There's going to be a lot of strain, you know, how do I understand and talk to you and, and ensure that my message lands better with you when you are under stress and that, you know, and that I recognize the signs and vice versa. So working as a team rather than this individual approach. Um, and of course, look, you can work with individuals on individual developmental plans, but it creates trust. You know, there's a, a better environment. The science shows that when you do that and you move down that path, you you get better results at the end of the day. And that hits your bottom line in a positive way. The social inequalities piece for me is really interesting because many private equity firms, and there are a lot of industries that use these, but these psychometric tools that are used again for selection, if you don't pass the tool, it's a pass or fail situation. Um, and as you talked about earlier, you said to you said to me, let's talk about diversity. Well, this is a key thing, right? The industry needs more diverse folks. A hundred percent. We all know that it's very clear. This isn't specific to HG. This is the whole of the industry. But as we think about the folks that we're trying to bring in, those folks may not have had the opportunities that other folks had. Right. So you you may have gone to you may be in a lower socioeconomic group, have gone to a less well-established school, but you're you're bright. You have many different areas of um, strengths. They might not be in mathematics. They might not be, you may have never seen a develop, um, a psychometric tool before, whereas some of your peers who have had a different environment that they've grown up on might have gone to a different school, different socioeconomic background, ethnic background, etc., and had different opportunities, will be well-versed in this stuff generally, right? And so how is that a level playing field to come in and say, you need to do all do the same tests because we're saying we want the same things from you. So we all want the same, you know, kind of cognitive ability, numerical, et cetera. So generally we're talking about IQ tests or intelligence tests. We're saying that that equals intelligence. We're not giving enough room to say, well, hold on, not everybody had the same level playing field. And actually what about creativity? Why is that not a form of intelligence? What does intelligence really mean in 2021? And so I think a lot of this is outdated. It creates these social inequalities. I've seen it in organizations, spoken to peers where they've said, there are some brilliant interns we wanted to bring in um, who are ethnically diverse, but didn't pass that tool. But the big banks have hired them because the big banks are like, they're saying, listen, we, we get it now, right? We, we need to think about IQ in a very different way. We need to be thinking about EQ, what that brings into an organization, not have a homogenous group of people working within the organization. Um, and so I feel very strongly that these tools, many of them can create social inequalities and not give folks the hand up and get them into a level playing field and change your organizations because these will be the leaders of the future. Um, so that's that for me, tools is, it's a very, very big area and it's one that really needs to be looked at and thought about because this is not straightforward, but the, it's a big business. It's profitable. It is, um, there's a lot behind it. There's lots of people who've got these tools and, and they've run these tools for many years and they created them and they're making a lot of money from them. But actually lots of organizations are not thinking about, well, why am I using that? Does that make sense anymore? It's quite expensive. 
should we do a way them all together? So that, that's really how I feel about the two-off situation. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very interesting. And I think there's a really interesting broader point there about challenging recruiting norms, challenging the kind of received wisdom that's been then passed down and the way the way things have always been done. And 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 now just seems the, the perfect time to do that, definitely. So just thinking sort of slightly more broadly about talent as a whole, obviously you've got quite an interesting and unique role in terms of what you do and what your organization does. Talk about how the value of talent is perceived in terms of its relationship to sort of driving and growing business. So, you know, I, I always say the same phrase, um, which is, again, very true. And it's, it's, it's very true for this industry, but many others where you know, they're all at different, all the industries are at different stages, right, of um, kind of the talent um, journey and how mature they are in terms of um how they view talent in organizations. So for me, I would say this, talent is always at the top of the agenda for me, right? You've got to, you can have the best product, but, you know, what would Apple have been without someone like a Steve Jobs? You know, a charismatic, you know, some people would have found a charismatic leader, um, somebody who had a vision, lots of pros and cons to all of that, but brilliant product. But without the people, what are you? And to me, talent always has to be the greatest value creation lever you can pull. Um, and it's got to be top of the agenda. But when I would, I'd look through investment committee decks and I would see talent would be kind of page 69 of a 70 page deck. And it always fascinated me because I thought, why? Well, that should be really at the front of the deck. It's right. Who are people? What have we got here? And then everything else flows from that. Um, and, and to me, if you have the right people, if you have a brilliant management team, you know, in an ideal world of diverse folks who challenge each other, non-homogenous group, um, you are going to see fantastic value created from that group that will hit your bottom line over the period, the whole period um, in terms of the how long you hold on to the, the company for and then exit it. And generally, you get about five years or so. And so to me, verse, that is versus homogenous group of folks that are, you know, good enough for the role. Um, some who who might not be able to make the journey, but they're still there. You know, a what about the charismatic, um, thoughtful leader at the top? You know, if you're missing that, if that's shaky, if that doesn't make sense, then I've seen it time and time again as I look at the company's results, the the lack of development and the lack of awareness in these folks really means at the end of the day that an organization that could be brilliant and the profit at the end that could be stellar just isn't there. Whereas if you put together amazing teams of people and they don't all have to be A stars, right? Like this is the 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 magic bullet here is that you don't have to have A plus on the scorecard for everybody because that just doesn't work either. Right. You've got to have a mix of folks that understand there's a clear strategy, clear objectives. And you get that from the top. I always look at the top at leadership and say, if there are fundamental issues in a business, leadership is responsible for that. They must know what's going on. They must have a clear agenda for employees, clear objectives, and they must state that they must be transparent. Um, they must be human. And that's what COVID has definitely taught us. For us to be able to get to a very positive bottom line, to be able to scale our organizations, we've got to think about the folks we have now. How do we develop those folks? How do we retain those folks? What are their intrinsic um, motivations? 
you know, do you really know your people? Because I'll be asked a lot about this. And it's like, well, we'll just pay them more. I said, how do you know that their intrinsic motivation is money? How do you know? It might be yours, might not be theirs. Um, I'll tell you an example of a really amazing company. Um, you know, won't name names, but there was a company that was set up um, and it was set up by a bunch of guys that were at university together um, and they employed folks from that town they were from. So the folks from the university they went to, they had a lot of folks through that. They employed, they, they gave back a lot of business to the um, to the, the local community. Um, great business. And if you had done a, an assessment of them when they were younger, it was all about how are we going to make money? So money was an intrinsic motivator and that if you pay them more, you get the great value at the end. By the time we came to invest in them, we, we did a management assessment just to see, okay, right, here's the tool. Let's just see what we have. And we were very open, transparent. We sat down, we went through all of the, uh, the details that came back from the, uh, from the tool. And, our guys were a little worried because they said, well, commerce is really low, but, you know, they are philanthropic. You know, philanthropy is a really big thing for them. And what does this mean that they're not going to be too interested in making money for us? I said, no, we've just paid them a lot of money for that company. And so that that motivation has now changed. So to get the best out of these guys, sitting there talking about making them more money, that doesn't motivate them. Talking about how this is going to give back further to the community, that philanthropic piece, altruistic piece, that for them matters, you know. And so really understanding our folks and and being able to take them on a journey and to be able to say, we know what makes you tick. And it's not a presumption. It's it's a known fact. Um, Then we can kind of start to scale our organizations. We compound and scale them then from there, you know, with the right development with the right um, understanding of folks. Um, I think that's how you scale organizations with talent. You scale them up, you develop your folks, you realize that some people won't make that journey. Some people will always be, you know, a scaler from 50 to 100, but they're they're not going to be the 100 to 200 person and they know it themselves, right? There might be another job for them in the organization or it may actually be that the organization outgrows them. But as long as you keep your folks um, developed, you keep them um, you know, motivated, but you understand what those motivations really mean. That to me is a beautiful model of being able to compound up and scale, keep scaling those organizations, keep them growing, keep them developing, keep your folks engaged, educated, aware. Um, and I think that that to me is where I've seen brilliant examples. And when we don't go down that route, you, you, you get you get a result at the end of the day that the you know the environment the market will tick on um they'll still do a nice job you'll still get a good end result but will it be good or brilliant and that's i think the difference so as a final question we've talked a lot about how things are changing and how they how they're sort of going to move forward in the future what do you hope to see in terms of the evolution of talent acquisition, particularly at the executive level, over the next sort of 18 months to two years? What would you really hope would happen? So slightly controversial, I don't see talent as a function of HR. So I see talent as a business function. I think at that level, when I think about executive level, I see it as seat at the table, um, giving 
business leaders, you know, CEOs advice and the board advice on um, hiring in and retaining and developing um, executives as a business, um, a business line. You know, this is making decisions about your business through people. So leadership creating value. That's really the line here, leadership creating value. And that to me is a business line. That is not, it's got to be seen as as important. It's got to be seen as um, separate to, you know, kind of more of the, the, the lateral recruitment programs, the graduate programs. They're all different in their own rights and they all have a place. But I think everything is lobbed in together in lots of organizations in-house into one and not differentiated enough. And actually, in my years in doing this, I really see it as a different thing, really different, different offering. Um, and even more so in coming into private equity, I just see it as different. We actually don't sit as part of HR. It's a separate function. Um, and I've always believed that that makes sense because you're working for the business with the business, really. And I think when you're trying to drive um, and I hate the word initiative, so I don't tend to use them. Like diversity initiatives sound like something for a little while, but it doesn't sound like this is, you know, this is a, a, a business objective and goal and something that's here to stay. And so for me, that has to be driven with the business in partnership. It can't be, oh, I've got to hire lots more women into this organization because I see that as a, you know, HR telling me to do it. And because and it's hard for HR because they're trying to drive all of these things and you know at times it just doesn't happen. Um, and so I see it as a shift away from that. If you want to really focus on your top talent, it's got to be in conjunction with the business. I definitely want to see more around diversity, and I want us to really stop saying diversity. I think the short list of candidates, we've got to widen out those pools. We've got to talk, stop talking about hiring. 20% women every year and 30% women every year, it, it just gets slightly ridiculous. And I think it, it's starting, the pendulum swung one way and it swung completely the opposite way. And I think we need to get to an equilibrium here where there's not this sense that, oh, we're hiring in diverse folks because we have to. Actually, these are stellar candidates with brilliant ideas, um, all brilliant in their own rights, with their own developmental needs. And everybody should have a voice at the table. It doesn't matter whether you're pink or green, whether you're female, whether you're male, you know, any of those types of things. Everybody gets to have a say because they bring their own unique brilliance to work. And to me, that will take a long time. But I'm, I'm so hopeful and we're going we're gonna to drive that here. We are driving it already. Um, but that talk of, as I said to you earlier, male pale still, I really look, just want to see that go. I think that's really wrong. It makes people feel marginalized. It's, as I said, there's no equilibrium here. It's got to, it's, the pendulum's got to go back into the middle, um, but different. Um, and I definitely love the idea of people say the future of work. We've been talking about that for a long time. The management consultancies have talked about that for a very long time as well, where it's what's the future of work? But I mean, we're in it already, right? And I think COVID has just brought a lot of issues to the surface that needed to be aired out, that needed to be talked about, that um, that have to now, you, you can't avoid these topics. And it's brilliant. I think it's fantastic. If you can take anything from a crisis, you should. And I think from COVID, we have got to take this world of work, new way of being, taboos kind of, you know, gone. I think we need to take that and, and we need to ride on that real quick um, to get to where we need to get to. And then everything else kind of falls into place. So they're kind of some of the things that I would see for talent um, and definitely not page 69 of a 70-page deck.
<laughs> Elizabeth, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, Matt. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. My thanks to Elizabeth Wallace. If you want to find out more about E6 membership, then you can email their CEO, Simon Mullins, directly. And his email address is simon at e6.org. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us by searching for Recruiting Future. You can search all the past episodes at recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to the mailing list to get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time, and I hope you'll join me. This is my show. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.